Hello, and welcome to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Hello, and welcome to this latest in the OIS podcast series. My name is James Henderson. I'm a Distinguished Research Fellow at the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. And with me today, I have Bill Farron-Price for the first time. He's the new head of the gas programme at OIES. Now, Bill's been the editor of a piece entitled Key Themes for 2024, and we're going to discuss uh, our outlook for the next 12 months. But before that, Bill, welcome to your first OIES podcast. Thanks very much, Jim. It's lovely to be here. Okay, right. We're looking forward to the conversation. Well, look, you weren't here last year, but obviously there was a 2023 outlook as well. And as you edited the latest edition and you look back, what was the scorecard for 2023? Let's, let's have a look at history before we go forward. I think in general, the theme was uncertainty. And I, I don't think you can go wrong with calling that on when you're doing an outlook for a year ahead, especially in the markets that we've had for these last two or three years since the Ukraine crisis, since COVID. There are so many big moving parts. I think what's surprised actually, though, is that oil and gas markets, at least, have sort of settled down into a a new sort of post-crisis range. That doesn't seem to sync that neatly with a lot of our analysis on expected volatility and the lack of clarity on the outlook for for some of the fundamentals. So yes, it's been, it, it was an interesting year last year. I feel like the second half of the year has set a new tone where there is this disconnect between oil and gas markets and the fundamentals that we see at the Institute through our bottom-up work. Okay, well, look, let's get into the the future then. Uh, And before we do that, I'm going to date this podcast and say we're recording on the 18th of January. So any of your comments need to be taken in that light. But let's start with oil markets then. I mean, you've mentioned this disconnect between the apparent fundamentals and price action in the market. How's that playing out with oil? Well, it's always interesting with oil because you have a very active OPEC or OPEC plus now, OPEC with Russia and a few others, who are very proactive in terms of their desire to to manage supply and to balance this market. What we've seen is that despite the you know a strong demand growth last year in 23 that took us to a new high for global oil demands, that expectation is that, that that number comes down quite sharply this year. Basically, I think that that's due to the fact that the pent-up demand behind the COVID recovery has now happened, and we're getting back to the sort of oil demand growth that we saw as a trend mark, about 1.5 million barrels a day of growth in the, in the 10 years up to, say, 2019, pre-crisis. So things are changing. I think what's interesting is that despite you know, all of this unrest and, and, and violence we're seeing in the Middle East and, and the sort of proliferation of some of these conflicts in that region, which is, of course, the source of a great bulk of global oil supply, the, the oil prices actually remain relatively unmoved. And we're still very much at the low end of the envelope with Brent pinned below $80. And it, and it hasn't really responded to any of this supply risk that we uh, read about in the in the newspapers. So that's one of the features. Another one of the features that we can see on oil is that there isn't a great deal of consistency between the major agencies and forecasters on on what oil demand growth will look like in the year ahead. We're probably somewhere in the middle, slightly more bullish than some. Uh, OPEC's more bullish than us. I I think that's one of the features. And and I think uh, it's going to take some time to see how OPEC Plus decides to to address this sort of constant need for balancing. I mean, one of the flip sides of 
the fact that OPEC Plus has cut so much is that now there is significant spare capacity in the system. And I think that that is dulling some of the expected response to some of these um, perceived supply risks in, in, in the Middle East region. And so are we not expecting any particularly dramatic price action in 2024 then? I mean, you're, you're expecting that overcapacity to essentially keep markets fairly calm for, for the next 12 months? I think a lot will rest on on whether OPEC Plus sees out its its balancing mission through this year. You know, we have seen some volatility around that decision making. It depends upon all of those um, countries who've signed up to this supply management effort delivering the goods. Um, and sometimes they've done that better than at other times, and, and that can create frictions within within that group. I'm not going to crystal ball gaze for for potential major market uh, black swan events or anything like that. We we, we didn't see Russia-Ukraine ha- coming and we probably would, wouldn't have seen COVID coming either. So we've had some major um, dislocations in the last few years and it's it's impossible to, to call those ones. But broadly speaking, the global economy is facing uh, these macro headwinds that we, we, we are um, at the end of a, a rate tightening cycle, but rates are still high. Um, inflation is a bit gnarly and, and difficult to displace, uh, and and it could be some time before we see the benefits of a rate cutting cycle by the G7 central banks. And I think I think that that's probably one of the leading indicators. We could be back off to the races a bit more when we start to see that rate uh, cutting cycle commence at the Fed, Bank of Japan, and uh, and the ECB. But but we're not there yet, and. It, the current um, thinking is that that may not happen till the end of at least the second quarter. Let's move on. I mean, it's a bit of a whistle-top store, but we haven't got too much time. Let's go to gas markets. Again, there's a couple of pieces in, in the, the, the key themes document around gas markets. And one sort of highlights the tightness, the fundamental tightness and the lack of flexibility in the European market. And the other highlights the fact there's not going to be a huge amount of new LNG supply in the market in 2024. And yet again, prices seem to be remarkably benign. So what's going on there? That's a really good question. I, I I think part of the answer to this is that we are more than just more than halfway through the Northern Hemisphere winter. It has been, despite the current cold snap in, in Europe and the UK, it has actually been relatively mild and consumption has reflected that. So given that we started the winter with a very, very high storage fill rate, that has put us into a good situation to get through this winter without any risk of shortage. Then the real question then becomes the extent to which you can refill that storage over the summer. It's a bit of a sort of a curve flattening situation as far as I can see. And I think it sort of drives the seasonality out of this market a little bit to some extent, at least in terms of price. There is a disconnect, though. You're absolutely right. Our view on the fundamentals, both in terms of supply and demand in Europe, is that in that there isn't a great deal of, of, of flexibility. We're kind of running flat out in terms of um, pipeline supply into the continent. LNG deliveries are at a, at a relatively high level, have been. And there isn't a great deal more that you can add to that, apart from potentially more LNG at a higher price. But the, but the demand side is also relatively inflexible in the sense that we've seen two consecutive years now of, of demand declines we're probably not that much further to go um, in in terms of that. We would expect to see some sort of stabilization now. So the way we characterize that market is it's 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 lacking in flexibility or flexibility has waned on both sides of the ledger. 
and and I think that doesn't seem to stack up with you know with gas prices that have fallen below thirty euros for TTF on the, on the front month futures. The market is relentlessly bearish, and that suggests to me that we're getting back to some sort of normality. What's what's fascinating about both the oil and gas markets is that they share this incredible resilience, and they and they've managed to resume closer to, to sort of normal long term levels after these years of, of disruption. And they've done that um, with massive displacements of trade flows, both in terms of oil with Russian liquids heading to other markets, um, not into Europe and, and some other Western countries, and in terms of gas as well, same thing. We've displaced Russian gas from the European mix largely. It's still a little bit left to go in terms of Turkstream and, and Ukrainian transit. But the, the, the market is taking it in its stride. So, Bill, that's oil and gas markets. Um, let's move on a little bit now to sort of questions around energy transition. In the introduction to the key themes piece, you kind of highlight the fact that you think there might be an argument for saying that what was the trilemma is now more of a dilemma because energy security and then kind of environmental issues are more closely tied together now. And on the flip side of that coin is more the kind of affordability energy access so we're sort of more defining the conflict, if you like, between environment and price rather than environment and energy security. Do you, want to, do you want to expand on that a little bit? I was simply making the point that I think that sustainability, which involves quite often less traded energy and, and more homegrown renewable energy, is, is also contributing towards security of supply. It's no more an argument than that, of course, the counter argument to my point there is that, well, you would say that when oil and gas prices are relatively benign. But I think it is a consideration that if we are going to continue with this normalization, flattening of, of prices and flattening of the curve, then I think the focus becomes more on sustainability and concerns about the long term balances that we're going to see and the, the long term demand that we're going to see for, for hydrocarbons in, in the broader global energy system. It's kind of a flip towards the medium to longer term, if you like. But I mean, Jim, you were at COP28 in Dubai at the end of last year. I mean, I think you would probably have a, a stronger sense of the themes that had traction there and the predominant concerns of, of some of those key energy policy makers who were who were striking or trying to strike the deals there. Yeah, no, it, it was interesting. And, and there is a piece in the Key Things document on the kind of called the time for action after COP28, which I wrote. And I think that what I bring out there is a couple of things that relate back to what you said earlier. I mean, interestingly, a lot of the attention was focused on the future of fossil fuels. And it was interesting to hear you talking about record oil demand growth last year and still oil oil demand growth this year, which is in stark contrast, of course, to the great headline, which was the transition away from fossil fuels that was now, you know, in the COP conclusion. So again, but that dilemma between the short term demand for hydrocarbons and the long term need to remove them, I think was a, a key theme that came out. I think for me, though, beyond the headlines, there were a number of things that policymakers did say, which were fairly concrete things for 2024, which I think we need to look out for. First was the action on methane emissions where commitments were made by companies, albeit by 2030, to reduce methane emissions and to cut out flaring. But I think 2024 is a year when we have to see that action really taking place because there's not much time till 2030. And certainly there's going to be more monitoring by organisations like the IEA and the Environmental Defence Fund. So I think we're going to get more exposure on methane emissions. 
I think oil and gas companies were welcomed back to the COP process. They very much enjoyed being part of the negotiations, tried to position themselves as part of the solution, not the problem. But I think they now really need to be held to account. I think 2024 will be a year when we see whether they do start to really address scope one and two emissions, whether they really work hard to develop the CCS they were pushing, and whether they do genuinely cut flaring. I think that's a very clear target for 2024. Yeah, I mean, do you think that we have the means to to measure their success to to, to write a good scorecard for them by this time next year? I think a lot a lot of satellites have gone up. The Environmental Defence Fund, the IEA, have put a lot of money behind a kind of, and, and the IEA put a lot of money behind the Mars system, which is basically focused on methane emissions. And there are a number of independent companies out there now monitoring flaring very actively. So I think yes, I think that there is, and there's now very much a focus on it. I mean, there was a lot of talk about. You can run, but you can't hide, and uh, we're going to name and shame. And and so I think if it doesn't happen in 2024, then that's a big fail. I think it needs to happen this year, and I think that it's possible for, for it to happen. So I think holding oil and gas companies to account is going to be a, a big theme because they took such an active role in the COP. I think beyond that, there are some other big issues for this year. The changing role of the World Bank is one, a commitment to spend more, to invest more in energy transition in the developing world. We need to see that happening. And there was a big commitment to talk about that in 2024. There are a whole heap of financing commitments around mitigation and adaptation, which need to be fulfilled before COP29 and agreed on at COP29. So I think we're looking out for that, particularly an agreement on how much money needs to be spent beyond 2025 by the developed world. And then finally, I think there were the commitments, the big commitments to the advances in renewables and energy efficiency. You know, the target to triple uh, renewable energy capacity by 2030. You know, there is clearly a step-by-step process that goes on through there, and then energy efficiency again, doubling it by 2030. So these are things that we need to see action on in 2024. Yeah, no, I was going to ask you again. It's the same sort of question, really, in terms of the tripling of renewables and so on. The trouble with these long-term targets is that. There isn't a defined set pathway about how much you need to do each year. I mean, there is mathematically, but it's not a political thing. Are you sort of clear-eyed and realistic about whether that translates into action on the ground in terms of the the renewable industry? Or do you think we'll just have another year of, of, of sort of slightly sketchy, patchy, adherence to targets and the other my other question really was about carbon markets the the failure yet again of a cop meeting to deliver a framework for trading carbon or for carbon management what do you think about those two things you're right to point out that there are a lot of caveats here i mean the renewables target was a global target not a country by country target so you know it's how how is it going to get met on the flip side of that a country like china potentially could do the entire tripling of solar by 2030 on its own for the for the whole world according to our colleagues in, the, in our China program. So, you know, there's there's two sides of that coin as well. But you're you're absolutely right. I think many of the targets set by the COP process are overarching targets. And many countries saw the wording of the final document as providing lots of flexibility about how they go about achieving their own energy transition, whether you're an oil producer, a coal consumer, or a developer of renewables. I mean, so, so yes, it, it, one has to be very calm and measured about these targets and sort of say, yeah, okay, well, they're there now. That's encouraging action, but, you know, individual countries will do their own thing. On carbon markets, very interesting. You're right. It was the one big disappointment of, of COP28. There really was an expectation that we get some firm rules under Article 6.2 for country-to-country trading and Article 6.4 for company-to-company trading. And there really weren't. There was a little bit of movement in terms of some of the technical stuff that was agreed, but actually it was all deferred to COP29. So although Hassan, our head of carbon management, is 
picking out some of the positives from COP. Overall, it was a disappointment. And I think the question about what happens in voluntary carbon markets in 2024, I mean, 2023 was a year of scandal and price declines. Nothing really happened at COP to reverse that. So a lot of work to be done in 2024 to hopefully get it done over the line in COP29. But yeah, certainly carbon markets. And I think geopolitically, interestingly, on the flip side of voluntary carbon markets, namely carbon pricing, the geopolitics around carbon pricing really came to the fore in the discussion of the EU's CBAM and what, how people interpret the role of CBAM. The EU obviously sees it as a relatively benign force to try and encourage global carbon pricing. Others see it as a, a trade barrier and a, a protectionist act. And I guess on that point, uh, let me come back to you and sort of say, you know, one of the other themes in the, the document that you, you edited was around this kind of protectionism around industrial policy now. How do you see that moving forward into 2024? I mean, you've obviously got the IRA in the, in the US, we've got the different industrial policies in the EU, we've got China moving its own speed as well. How, how do you see that in terms of the, a theme going forward? It's a really good question. I pull this under my view that we're living in a much more sort of unilateral world where, where nation states are less prepared to agree multilateral deals. A lot of the multilateral structures we got have been ineffective politically, They've not been effective on, on a lot of these sort of complex multilateral platforms where you need to get buy-in from, a, from a, a host of different countries. And I think one of the features of that, and we've see, certainly seen it with the US IRA, is that you are doing these, these, these climate policies essentially as a, a major boost to the economy. It's one of the easiest ways to, to inject fiscal support into the country's economy. And so there is this, this massive overlap at the moment between climate-related investment and what arguably is, is protectionist policies. I think that that probably, that trend is going to increase because we're in a year of elections. If you look at the UK elections, both major parties are relaxing their commitments to, to some of the green spending and targets that they've had. But where they do make them, I'm pretty sure that they are going to be pump priming type arrangements that are designed to to rekindle growth in, in these OECD countries where, where growth has become sclerotic and, and, and very flat. I think the challenge for future COPs uh, and similar types of, of multilateral effort are to sort of overcome some of this unilateralism and, and rekindle the spirit of cooperation. And I, I think that that's a massive challenge in the very fragmented politics of these liberal democracies in the OECD. I think it's probably less of a challenge, strangely, in the developing world, where, where you have the ability for policy to translate through to action is a little bit more straightforward. We've certainly seen that with China. Indeed. And on a couple of issues, you know, we're talking about kind of indigenous energy supply and, and industrial development. There's a couple of themes in the document around that. One, hydrogen, which has been a perennial theme, and one where there's been a lot of talk, or now a lot of strategies, particularly in Europe, but actually across the world. Are we feeling a bit more bullish? Well, not a bit more. Are we feeling bullish for hydrogen still, or are we still on the sceptical side of the future for hydrogen? Yeah, I think we we need to see the money. I mean, it, it, it just feels with hydrogen that we're going to be talking a lot of blue hydrogen while these uh, nascent green hydrogen projects are given a chance to lift off. The challenges are multiple in, in the hydrogen sector. I, I have no doubt that hydrogen will play a role in industrial clusters and in, in certain uh, industrial applications. I think it's 
it's challenging to see how these extraordinarily upgraded EU targets get anywhere near met. It's a bit like you were describing about, uh, you know, post-COP, this is the year where we need to see the action. It's the same with hydrogen. We, we need to see outside of China a real uptick in actual um, FIDs translating into projects that actually are sustainable and make money. And another area we talk about in the document is offshore wind, where everything was going tremendously well. And suddenly we've hit the buffers this year with inflation costs and basically auctions not working in the UK and projects being backtracked on in the US. What is the outlook for offshore wind in 2024? I'm more positive about offshore wind. And I think think that's reflected in Rahmat Poudinet's piece in the collection. There are problems. As, as with all of these things, it's complex. You have infrastructure, port infrastructure to, to build offshore wind. You have the supply chain. You have costs, as you pointed out, going up. If you actually look at the, the cost graph in the report, you can see that they have ticked up, but, but they're nothing like anywhere near the, the levels that they were only a few years ago. So I suspect that that's just similar to the sort of cost increases that we've seen across multiple industries over the last few years. I think it's just playing out in offshore wind now. I think what is encouraging is that, particularly for countries like the UK, which has done such taken such a leading role in offshore wind, there is evidence that the government is responsive and has responded by increasing the offtake strike price. And I, I think that should give some comfort to to developers to to, to carry on bidding and uh, building out this this crucial sector. Of course, it doesn't deal with the, the longer term story of how you balance power supply um, in the longer term, given the intermittency and, and the need for gas. It, it rolls back to gas in, 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 in the near term until we have viable long term storage solutions. But ultimately, offshore wind is one of the great success stories in the UK. And I think that the outlook is, is fairly strong in the US and elsewhere as well. Okay, well, look, we're coming to the end of our time now. So let's let's get on to some you know, the elephant in the room, which we haven't talked about yet, which is the geopolitics and China in particular, which is just such a sort of standout influence on energy markets, both hydrocarbon and energy transition. What are we saying about China for 2024? As you said, it's the elephant in the room, the wild card. It has the capacity to influence all of these markets immensely through um, its government policy decisions and how well it plans for its extraordinarily um, aggressive renewables business, how how it plans for its uh, still huge reliance on imported hydrocarbons, both LNG, pipeline gas and, and of course, oil. China is, is absolutely critical to watch. It can blindside Bersley plans elsewhere. In terms of the geopol, I think we, we discussed this at the very beginning. We are living in a fragmented world with multiple bilateral conflicts springing up. Some of these have themes, others, others are, are more isolated. What is fascinating to me has been the resilience of, of commodity markets, their fungibility, their their ability to to adapt to new circumstances and for prices to do their job. Uh, and then to normalise. And, and that's what the lesson of the last two or three years. And I think it's been a pretty good lesson. Any final conclusions from the, the you know, other than that, sort of the markets are seem to be reacting remarkably calmly to a lot of the turmoil that's going on in the world. What are your overall conclusions in terms of the transition? Do you think 2024 is a, a big year for transition? Or do you think it's more of the same and the sort of, you know, we're, we're on a, a slow and steady path? It's really difficult to, to call that one because in, until we see a peak of demand for hydrocarbons, and we're nowhere near that. 
at the moment. I mean, it, we can't see that. We are seeing transitional energy eat into some of, of that market, but it's still not stopping the growth. It will be interesting to see whether this year is any different to the, to the last. I think probably my closing takeaway would be watch the elections, because I think this whole bag of elections that are happening across the, the world have have huge potential to change the track and change the direction for a lot of this energy policy that that we track. And while that may well be inward looking, it may be country specific, in aggregate, that could change the sort of hunger for significant transitional behavior in terms of our energy systems. We could, for example, end up moving more towards uh, mitigation and adaptation. And, And I think that's the sort of area that is going to be quite live in 24. Okay, well, on that note, thanks, Bill, for your contributions today and for editing the the key themes for 2024 document, which is now available on the OIES website. So please feel free to go and download that. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation. There will be another OIES podcast out next week. So look out for that. But uh, with that, please take care of yourselves and goodbye. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. You can find other podcasts, as well as our written research, on our website at www.oxfordenergy.org. If you would like more details about our energy transition, gas, oil, electricity or China research programmes, then please contact us at information at oxfordenergy.org.